You guys ready for this? All right. Here we go. No. Uh, so Tim and Sue are here again. They were Tim's message last week is great. The love of Christ compels us to be his representatives to this world. I'm going to preach about that and save Daniel for... No, just kidding. Today we return to our series uh, through the book of Daniel. We're in chapter 7. Yay! No? Okay. Daniel has two uh, main parts, okay? The first part, chapter 1 through 6. There's 12 chapters, so divide it evenly. Uh, which we've already looked at. It's uh, pretty much historical in nature. In these chapters, we're given six stories, little vignettes, that occurred throughout the life of Daniel, and to a lesser extent, his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Each story provides an example of how these men, these exiles, taken from their land, brought to Babylon, were faithful to God as they lived in a foreign pagan kingdom. And the main purpose of each story is to give all elect exiles, including us. Remember, Peter calls us elect exiles to give us hope, to give us uh, uh, encouragement, comfort as we live in this uh, foreign world. Daniel does this by showing and again and again the sovereignty of God, that God is in control that God is at work for the good of his people, even in times of great opposition from the world. Now, if you remember from chapter 6, the last story of God's sovereignty and protection of his people, uh, Daniel and the lion's den, occurred near the end of Daniel's life. So as we come to the second part of Daniel, chapters 7 through 12, we're taken back in time. The focus of these chapters is on the visions that God gave Daniel throughout his life. And these visions are what is known as apocalyptic in nature. Okay? They're filled with complex, mysterious imagery, which reveals the future even to the end of the age, end times, the end of the world. Now, it seems to me that Christians and non-Christians alike are interested in the apocalyptic. It's like, oh, the apocalyptic. <laughs> and what will happen at the end of the world? We see it in our, uh, in our movies, right? In recent years, Hollywood has projected the possible end of the world through alien attack, asteroids, cyborgs, nuclear holocaust, and killer viruses, just to name a few. And not to be outdone, Christians have their own end of the world scenarios. Maybe some of you remember the, some of you older folks out there, remember the 1970s end times movie, A Thief in the Night. You guys remember that? When I saw it, I was a young teen. I'm not sure it's, if it scared me into the kingdom, but it did scare me to pray to receive Christ again and again all night as I was worried about being left behind. And then there's the more modern Left Behind series of of many books and a few movies. This series goes into great detail. I think there's 12 main books and then there's scant many others about the end of the world as we know it. Now the authors of these Christian books and movies would argue that they are based on scripture, sort of apocalyptic future historical fiction. 
While, the, while other Christians who interpret Scripture, scripture differently would, would say that these works are less uh, historical and more fictional. Now, my purpose in mentioning this is to point out that when it comes to end-time stuff, Christians have many different views, opinions. There are many options out there. The other day, Tim Driscoll sent me a picture, and I thought it would be appropriate to share with us as we come to Daniel 7. You know what God left out of the Bible? Your opinion. And mine as well. I include myself in that. I don't know where Boger City is, but if I ever go there, I want to visit this church. When it comes to the Bible, we need to distinguish between what is our opinion, or the opinion of others even, as opposed to what's clearly taught in Scripture. And this is nowhere more needed than when it comes to uh, end-time stuff. What is your view, your opinion about the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth? Are you premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial? Do you believe in the rapture, the removal of the church from the earth? And if so, do you believe it will come pre-trib, mid-trib, or post-trib? Or are you totally confused by what I'm saying right now? It's okay. Eschatology, that's sort of what we're talking about. That's the part of theology that's concerned with the final events in history, in the history of the world. And it can be confusing. And it doesn't help that this seems to be the most fluid and debated part of theology. What I mean by fluid is that throughout history, a person or a group's eschatology, what they believe about the end times, is often based on what's happening in their own world right then, rather than what the Bible teaches. We can tend to focus on what's currently happening in our own nation when it comes to our eschatological views. I was listening to the radio the other day, and the preacher said this, Our world is in such turmoil, I can almost hear the trumpet player practicing. What he meant was, in his opinion, the current state of the United States is getting so bad that the rapture of the church, signified by the sound of the trumpet, will happen at any, at any time. It's got to be soon. And I thought, well, that's interesting. If turmoil in the world is a precursor to the rapture, then it's long overdue. Because we Christians in the United States have a long way to go before we can get to the level of turmoil that has come and gone in the past. For example, the turmoil of the Roman Empire and their persecution of Christians. Or the turmoil, turmoil caused by the Black Death, which wiped out 60% of medieval Europe's population. Or the turmoil of World War I or World War II or any war for that matter. Think about the turmoil of our own civil war that took the lives of over 600,000 men. And what about the turmoil of the communist takeovers of Russia? Eastern Europe, China, Cambodia, Vietnam, North Korea, where millions and millions of people, including Christians, have been and continue to be imprisoned and even executed by the state. My point is this. History is filled with turmoil, difficulty, violence, sin, and suffering. So I'd caution anyone who seeks to overemphasize the current state of our country or even our world, in seeking to determine when the end will come. I can say one thing, though. We're closer now than we were yesterday. That's the best I can do. 
However, that being said, that does not negate the fact that the Bible does speak of what will take place at the end of time. And some pastors, like me, who are less than confident that they, myself, or really anyone, have figured out all of the details of the end times, can often avoid books like Daniel and uh, Revelation, to name two. And that's not good. These apocalyptic books, like all scripture, have much to offer. They're part of God's word and therefore deserve study. They deserve understanding. They deserve obedience. So even though in our study of Daniel, we won't create a chart detailing exactly what the final events of history will include. Don't expect that. I believe we can, through sensible yet cautious interpretation, understand these chapters in such a way that reveals the message God has for believers in all times and all places, regardless of their eschatology. If we understand the central purpose of these chapters and focus our attention on what is clear and straightforward rather than what is complicated and obscure then we can find blessing, instruction, encouragement in Daniel as well as other apocalyptic portions of the Bible. Also, at Bridges, we don't require or promote a specific eschatology. You don't have to believe certain things about the end times to be part of our church. So by focusing on what is clear instead of what is obscure, we who probably hold a variety of different end times views can be unified around the, and ministered to by the clear central truths of these chapters. So let me suggest what I believe the clear purpose of Daniel's visions are. This will help us navigate these chapters without having to spend too much time trying to figure out every image, every symbol, every detail. As I said earlier, the first six chapters of Daniel are historic in nature. The second are apocalyptic. Uh, even you could say prophetic in nature. So in many ways, the first six chapters and second six chapters are different. But they are part of the same book, written by the same person, probably Daniel himself, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And as such, they, I believe, part one and two, share a common theme, a common purpose. It runs throughout the book. That is to provide hope and encouragement for all elect exiles. In these visions, we'll see that no matter who you are, or when you live, or what government you might suffer under, God is in control. He is sovereign, and He will work all things together for the good of those who trust in Him. And that should give us hope. That should give us encouragement as we live as his representatives, as Christ's love compels us to be his representatives in this sinful, fallen, beastly world. So I'll seek to preach through these six chapters of Daniel, not with the goal of answering all the questions about every complex image, but my main purpose will be to help us grasp the truth that as elect exiles, as children of a sovereign God, our future in Christ is secure. Therefore, no matter what our circumstances, no matter when in history we live, no matter what beasts we encounter, no matter if Christ returns today or a thousand years from today, we right now can live in obedience to him and passion for him. 
However, I should warn you that I do have my own views, my own opinions about the end times, some of which have changed radically over the years. When it comes to eschatology, end times stuff, I try to hold my beliefs loosely, prayerfully allowing my understanding of Scripture to dictate and even change my beliefs where necessary. So I can't promise that my opinions won't slip through, but I, I will try to make it clear that, that this is what I believe as opposed to this is what the only way to believe. This is the, the, that comes in the clear teaching of Scripture, I believe. Is that fair? And that finally brings us to Daniel chapter 7. This chapter has one vision, but it can be broken into uh, two or even three parts. There is an earthly, beastly part vision found in verses 1 through 8 and then 15 through 28. And that's what we'll focus on for the rest of today. And there's a heavenly, godly part vision found in verses 9 through 14. That's what we'll focus on next week. But there's also a third part, and that involves where the heavenly touches the earthly. We'll look at that both this week and next. Okay? So that sort of sets you up for the next two weeks. And before we get to the actual verses, let me pray. Father God, we just come to you in, in humility, coming come to your word, and we pray for your guidance, for your leadership, for your understanding. Whatever I say that is not from you today, Lord, let it just go in and out, uh, the, the ears and the minds of those here. But the things that are from you, the things that are clearly from you, Father, help them to stick and to hold on, that we might be encouraged, that we might fight hope, that we might be transformed by your word. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So today our focus is on the earthly vision, and it begins with the dream of four beasts. Verse 1. Can I have some water? I'll be right back. It's really hot up here with these lights beaming down on your forehead. Or my forehead. I usually don't need water, but... Okay, verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and, a, and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. This puts Daniel's uh, dream, vision, in historical context. You might remo remember Belshazzar uh, from Daniel chapter 5. He was the last king of the Babylonian empire. The writing on the wall declares him to be weighed in the balances and found wanting. So, his, so this dream that Daniel has takes place somewhere between Daniel chapter 4 and chapter 5, when the Babylonians ruled the world. Verse 2, Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. So in Daniel's vision dream by night, he, he first sees the four winds of heaven stirring up the sea. Four winds probably means they're coming from all four directions, north, south, east, and west. And the fact that these winds are from heaven gives us our first hint that God is in control of what follows. God is the instigator of these things, including the fact that these heavenly winds are stirring up the great sea. 
In the Bible, the sea is sometimes a symbol of humanity, and the fact that it's stirred up could point to humanity's rebellion against God. So it seems that what comes next is under God's control, yet it comes out of humanity, uh, a humanity that's in rebellion against God. And I say that not because I'm sure of each, the meaning of each symbol, but because uh, it fits with the interpretation that's going to come uh, beginning in verse 17. Just a heads up, these four beasts are four kings. Now we're not going to look at that till we get to the next point, but just have that in the back of your mind. That's... that's uh, the first part of the interpretation. Verse 3, And four great beasts came out of the sea different from one another. The stirred up sea produces four different great beasts. Notice that like the four winds, there are four beasts, which may mean that like the wind, these beasts are coming from all four directions of the compass. Then in verse 4, we read of the first beast. The first was like a lion And had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off. And it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. That's kind of weird, right? But not so bad, right? This first beast is like, just so we're clear, I'm not going to have images of these beasts. Because we don't. it's, It's just like this. This is the best way Daniel can describe it. It's not a lion. It doesn't have eagle wings. It's like a lion with eagle's wings. So it it has strength and majesty of a lion combined with the speed and the power of an eagle, something like that. But then the beast was transformed. Its wings were stripped off, and it was raised to its feet like a man, and it was given a human mind. So that's the vision of the first beast. Then, verse 5, we read, And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. The second beast seems worse than the first, right? It's like a bear, very powerful, but it was raised up on one side. Maybe it's getting ready to attack. Maybe it has some kind of deformity. And interestingly, it already has three ribs in its mouth, apparently from its previous victims. But it was told by someone higher some power greater to arise and devour even more. So that's the second beast. In verse 6 we read, After this I looked and behold another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads and dominion was given to it. The third beast was, was part leopard, part bird with four heads. Okay, this is sounding a little more like a, uh, than a, a nightmare than a dream. Such a flying leopard would be both ferocious and fast. And it's, it's four again, the word four, uh, number four again. Heads could mean it was capable from seeing, of seeing in all directions. Nowhere to run, nowhere to hide from this beast. And this beast is given authority to rule, which again suggests that there's a higher power at work here, which I believe means that these beasts, like all things, un- are, are under the authority of God. So even though they they can be terrifying, they can only do what God allows. That should be encouraging. So that's the third beast. Then in verse 7 we read, After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the other beasts that were before it. 
and it had ten horns. Okay. Frightening though the first three beasts were, the fourth beast could not even be described in terms of an earthly animal. No animals there. I, I don't even know. It was frightening and dreadful, incredibly strong, with large iron teeth that devoured and crushed, and it trampled down whatever it didn't eat. Its, its head had ten horns, and since horns are often a symbol of strength in the Bible, ten of them symbolized massively multiplied strength. And then, in an even more bizarre twist, verse 8 we read, I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots, and behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. So the vision of these four beasts ends with a, a little yet powerful horn. And like the first beast, this horn has characteristics of a man. The horn had eyes and a mouth that spoke arrogantly. So that's the fourth beast. And the end, that's the end of the first part of the, 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 this, this earthly part of the vision Daniel is given. Now imagine if you're Daniel, seeing this vision, dreams, nightmare, uh, knowing it's from God, a vision filled with terrifying imagery, uh, then you have to write it down. How would you feel if your dreams were filled with beasts? Worried, afraid, terrified, filled with questions? Daniel was certainly affected. In verse 15, he writes, As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. So we're jumping to verse 15. 9 through 14 is sort of the heavenly part of the vision. It would be good to sort of read that, maybe you read it in advance, to know about the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man, but we're going we're gonna to keep these together. We'll touch on those at the end. But just, just know we've skipped, we've skipped down a little bit. So this vision caused Daniel uh, to experience anxiety, alarm, probably fear. These four beasts do not represent anything to rejoice in, nothing positive there. They come out of a stirred-up sea and possible rebellion against God, and they devour and crush and strike terror in the hearts of men. And quite naturally, Daniel wants to know, what, what does this mean? And so do we, right? The imagery has given us some clues, but now we turn to the definition of the four beasts. Beginning in verse 16, Daniel writes, I approach one of those who stood there. This is probably an angel. Well, Angels, next week, I mean, in chapter 8, there's an angel there and interpreting the vision, and so this is probably an angel, and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. Okay, now we're getting somewhere, right? The four beasts are four kings or, or kingdoms. So sort of use those interchangeably. What else do we know? Well... We'll get a little more information about the fourth beast, king, but for the first three, uh, this is it. These beasts that come out of the stirred-up sea are kings that arise out of the earth. And that's all the angel tells Daniel, and therefore that's ultimately all we need to know. The temptation, however, is to try to identify exactly which four earthly kings or kingdoms match up with these beasts. And that's not without merit. 
But I don't think it's necessary to understand the point of this chapter. We're going to talk a little bit about it, but ultimately, it's not going to matter. Okay? I, I do, I'll mention that many interpreters believe these four beasts correspond to the four kings or kingdoms uh, of Nebuchadnezzar's dream of a statue in chapter 2. You remember that? Four, his dream, four kingdoms. In his dream, the first kingdom, the head of gold, was explicitly identified as himself, as Nebuchadnezzar, as Babylon, the Babylonian Empire. And because of that, it's generally agreed upon that the next three kingdoms are Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, which historically followed the Babylonian Empire. So that was chapter 2 in the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. And since the first beast of chapter 7, this is the reasoning, The winged lion that became a man could represent Nebuchadnezzar, who in chapter 4, if you remember chapter 4, was transformed from acting like a beast. So he was like uh, disregarding God. God humbled him, made him this beast, and he regained his senses and became a man again. Then it could mean that the the next three beasts, so that, that sort of drives the interpretation that the first beast is the winged lion who, who gets his, becomes a man, uh, is given the mind of a man, was referring to Nebuchadnezzar. And if that's the case, then follows. These next beasts would be Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. These interpreters go on to say that the second beast, the bear, is thought to be Medo-Persian empire partially because it was raised up on one side, signifying that one part of the empire, Persia, is more powerful than the other part, the Medes. And the third beast, the winged leopard, is thought to be the Greek empire because it was fast and furious the way Alexander the Great conquered the known world. So that's just how some of that is is seen. That's sort of a popular sort of view. What about the fourth beast or king? Well, if we jump down to verse 19, we see Daniel wants uh, more information on this beast. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze. Just point out the the toes of Nebuchadnezzar's statue were iron and bronze. So that's another thing they point out that this could be Rome. That was Rome. This could be Rome. And which devoured and broke into pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And above the ten horns that were on its head, And the other horn that came up, and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things, and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. So Daniel basically sort of just repeats his vision of the fourth beast, adding that the little horn made war with and prevailed over the saints. So whoever, whatever, whoever this is, this kingdom, this king, Uh, he will be engaged in the persecution of the saints, the holy ones. That's the translation of saints. This is what Daniel has seen, and he wants to know what it means. And the angel responds, beginning in verse 23. Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, and trample it down, and break it to pieces. So this fourth kingdom is somehow different from all the other kingdoms. It's certainly the strongest, most powerful, and seems to be the evilest. 
It will devour, trample, and break into pieces the whole earth. Now, the whole earth could mean the whole earth, everything we know as the earth, or it could mean the whole known earth, the known world, what they knew of the earth in Daniel's day and beyond. So it could be the Romans who historically not only persecuted the saints, but did a lot of devouring, trampling, and breaking down the world into pieces. But it could also be some future kingdom that does the same sort of thing to the literal whole world, or it could be neither, or it could, be, uh, could represent both. This fourth kingdom seems to, uh, by the interpreters, not only represent Rome, but then some, also some other future kingdom. Verse 24. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise. So there are, it's more than just one king. It's, we got ten kings now. So the beast is a king, but out of his kingdom will come ten kings. Now, is this literal, specific ten kings, or does ten represent uh, completeness? Therefore, is it talking about just many kingdoms that come out from this? And another shall arise after them. So this is after the ten. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law and they shall be given into his hands for a time, times, and half a time. This is that final little horn with the eyes and the mouth of Daniel's vision. He'll be different in some ways. He'll somehow put down three of the kings, three of the, some portion of the kings. He will be anti-God. He'll be anti-saint of God. And he'll at least try to somehow change the times and the laws. What times, what, what laws, we're not told. And finally, it seems that they, the saints, will be given, it seems by God, the authority here, into his hands, certainly for persecution, for time, times, and half time. I've heard this interpreted as uh, three and a half years. We got it, three and a half years. Time, one year, times, two years, and half a time, a half a year. One plus two plus a half equals? Bingo. Maybe, but the angel doesn't specify, and ultimately, it doesn't matter. In fact, he doesn't specify much, if you've been following along. What, what, do we learn, what we learn is vague enough to describe several historical tyrants, including uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, the Seleucid-slash-Greek uh, king who brutally oppressed the Jews in the mid-2nd century B.C. He was a bad dude. Yet at the same time, these images are non-specific enough to leave the identity of this little horn ultimately uncertain. Is it a past king? Or could it be a future uh, uh, antichrist spoken of in Revelation? Or could it be a representative of both? And why am I asking so many questions and giving so few answers? Because I believe that while these beasts could be the same four kingdoms that we saw in chapter 2, and that the final beast could ultimately represent the antichrist, for some good reason that we're not told... Uh, who these kings actually are. And that's, uh, that's, and it's possible to do that. 
It's not like Daniel avoided that altogether, or the interpreters avoided that. We saw it in chapter 2, where he explicitly identified uh, the, the statue, the head of gold is Nebuchadnezzar, giving us really the key to understanding the whole statue. And in chapter 8, next chapter, he's going to identify, he's going to have some visions, and they're going to be identified by name, what kingdom they're talking about. So he could have done it here, but he doesn't. This suggests that knowing exactly who these kings are is not the point of the vision. In fact, I'd say that definitely assigning specific kings or kingdoms to the beast probably takes away from the purpose of the vision. That's why it's a vision, okay? Instead of a, here, let me just tell you this. Because if these are four specific past kingdoms or even some future kingdom, what does that mean for those throughout history, including us, who live after these kingdoms have fallen or before this final kingdom? Does it say anything about our current kingdoms of our world? Does it say anything uh, to us about living as elect exiles under the kings of our world? Well, maybe, maybe not. So that leads me to believe that although it's possible that these beasts refer to specific past kingdoms or even to future final earthly kingdoms, they also in some way represent all world empires to one degree or another. Coming out of the sea of humanity, which is stirred up by the four winds of heaven, these four beasts could represent coming from all directions throughout the whole world during history. And with that, the message of Daniel chapter 7 is that life in this world, past, present, and future, ruled by beastly kingdoms, will be filled with turmoil and difficulty difficulty until the end of the age. We'll see that some this week and next week. Until God sets all things as they should be. That's the hope. It's sort of like this week, this part of the vision, that's the bad news, but it's setting us up for the great news. I find it interesting that uh, the superpowers of our own time often represent themselves by predatory animals, such as the Russian bear, the Chinese dragon, and the American eagle. The beasts of the present world order may change their shapes, as, the, as, the, as time passes, but their turmoil, violence, and lust for power continues. Babylonian Nebuchadnezzar turns into Medo, Medo-Persian Darius, who becomes uh, Greek Alexander the Great and Antiochus Epiphanes. These fierce rulers, in turn, are followed by Rome, Nero, Domitian. Their, their fires of persecution continued to be stoked centuries later by the Inquisition. And in the last century... We've seen further manifestation of beasts in the persons of Adolf Hitler and Stalin and Mao and Pol Pot and Kim Jong, whichever one it is, Kim Jong Il, and others, others that are less known to us. The terrifying beasts of this age were present at the gas chambers in Nazi Germany and on the killing fields of Cambodia and Rwanda, and they're still tormenting the saints in Nigeria where Sherry's hopefully going. Keep praying for Sherry and her visa. visa. Not to be pers- don't pray for her to be persecuted. Pray that she'll get there. I think she's going to a more safe part of Nigeria. Is that 
True. Ah, she did a little 50-50. Nigeria, and then we sometimes read about what's happening in China. And in other parts of our modern world. And in Revelation 13, we see another beast rising. Rising from the sea, representing the, the persecuting power of the Antichrist. John writes, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, and ten diadems on the horns, and the blasphemous names on its head. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. This beast sort of combines aspects of each of Daniel's creatures into one. A multi-headed, ten-horned, lion, bear, leopard. Wow. So I want us to see that no matter where, uh, where we are, what time of history we live, there will be frightening beasts, kings, rulers, and kingdoms that pit themselves against the Lord and His anointed. And this continual presence of the beasts in our world ought not to surprise us. Especially given who Jesus in John 12 calls the ruler of this world. That is the great dragon, Satan himself. And Paul reminds us in Ephesians 6, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so the, the vision declares that our world is being run by a succession of fearsome beasts that seem to go from bad to worse, each one more frightening than the one before. There may be times, and there certainly have been, when kings and rulers and governments are less brutal, less the, are less beastly. That's been the case for us, right, in the West, past several centuries. But ultimately, any nation, any ruler and government, including the United States of America, that pits itself against God and His anointed will become more and more beastly. And as we'll see, they'll ultimately be destroyed. And you ask, uh, you say, uh, well, thanks, Pastor. That's very encouraging. That's a lot of comfort and hope. Well, most of that's coming next week, okay? So you have to come back. But I do want to end on a positive. I think we have time for this. It's important for us to notice that the focus of this chapter is not on the beasts themselves. After all, the purpose of the passage is not to give us nightmares, but to calm our nightmares, to calm our fears. Next week, we'll look closely at the heavenly part of Daniel's vision. We'll see the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man, who are much more, much more easy to identify than these beasts. But as we conclude, I want to briefly touch on what happens when the heavenly touches the earthly, when these beasts will be judged by the God of heaven. So let's end with the demise of the four beasts. Throughout this passage, we're assured both that, the beasts, uh, both that the beasts will fall and that by God's power, the saints will achieve eternal victory. The saints will achieve eternal victory. That's it. In verse 11, after describing the Ancient of Days, a vision of God, we'll look at more next week, Daniel writes, I looked... Then, because of the sound of the great words and the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast, the beast was killed, presumably by the Ancient of Days, and its body was destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. So the fourth beast receives the judgment of death from God, and the authority is taken away from the other three. 
Then in verse 18, after the beasts have been identified as kings, uh, Daniel writes, But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. The rule of these beasts, these beastly kings, is temporary. But the saints of God, the people of God, elect exiles like Daniel and you and me will receive God's kingdom, his eternal kingdom. Then in verse 21 and 22, we read, As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. There's a time when the beasts will prevail over the saints. The horn, uh, uh, the, 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 the beast, the horn, the kings of the world will oppress and persecute and kill, martyr God's people. We know that. We've seen it. Until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. The angel's not fixated on identifying the beasts. Rather, the central point is the certainty of the final victory of God and the inheritance of his eternal kingdom by the saints. Then finally, verses 26, 27, speaking of that final blasphemous persecuting king represented by that little horn, we read, but the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. That's it. Yes, this horn, little horn king with some eyes, he can say whatever he wants, right? He'll assault God's people. It'll be a trying time for the saints. But look beyond the horn, the the angel says. The point of the vision is that the time when the beast will oppress the saints is limited by God. Beyond it lies the scene of a heavenly court where the beasts will finally be destroyed. Then the power and the greatness will be handed over to the saints, to the people of the Most High, and His kingdom This kingdom that we'll be part of will never end. Amen. So application, fear not. Well, maybe. Depends on which kingdom are you part of. Who's your king? Is it one of these earthly, beastly kings? Then you, along with them, will be destroyed. But for those who trust in the Lord, for those whose king is the Ancient of Days, the Son of Man, God, Jesus Christ. We, we have nothing to fear. This world may be filled with turmoil, destruction. No matter how beastly this world is, no matter how the saints are persecuted, ridiculed, put down for being followers of Jesus Christ, know this, be encouraged by this, the ultimate victory, our victory in Christ is assured. Therefore, that should change how you live today in all circumstances, knowing the victory and kingdom will be yours, will be ours. We, like Daniel, are to remain faithful to God in all things. We're to live because Christ's love compels us to be his representatives in this world, in this beastly world oftentimes. 
So I'd encourage you with that, with those words, knowing that, that no matter what happens, you know, I, I, I like probably many of you, uh, don't totally disagree with that preacher I talked about, the turmoil we're seeing. It's different from the past, right? And we're going, what's going on here? Oftentimes, we don't have to worry. We don't have to fear. It may get really bad, but ultimately, we're in the hands of God. He's sovereign over our lives, and he's sovereign over our eternity. Fear not. Amen? I'm not sure... uh, David Crowder was thinking of Daniel when he wrote this song, Come As You Are. But I think it's appropriate to conclude with these words of encouragement from his song. Come out of sadness from wherever you've been. Come brokenhearted, let rescue begin. Come find your mercy, O sinner, come kneel. Earth has no sorrow, earth has no beasts that heaven can't heal, that God can't deal with. Earth has no sorrow that heaven can't heal. Amen. Would you pray with me? Father God, thank you so much for your word. Even sometimes when it's difficult to understand, there's a point there, and you make it clear. And we thank you for that. Lord, I pray for us. I pray that we would know that we're part of your kingdom, that we're your saints, and that we'll receive final, ultimate victory in your kingdom. That's assured by you. And, and that would cause us to live in this world without fear, without worry and anxiety, but with the desire to be your representatives, to share the love of Christ with those in our world, that, that, that others may, may come to know you and worship you as you deserve. For in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So join us next week as we uh, focus a little bit more on the, the positive side. Although I think the end there was pretty positive. You got it? All right. Uh, Brian's going to come now and lead us in communion.